This week on Plot Points Podcast, Mark and Toby geek out over the final frontier. We get nostalgic over nostalgia and why you should wait to maybe buy that Porsche. Damn, Damn it, Jim! This is Plot Points Podcast. Hi, this is Mark with uh, Plot Points Podcast. We're back at our wonderful Newport Beach location after a small hiatus. Um, my mother passed away a couple weeks ago, and uh, I'd like to dedicate this podcast to her. And I'd like to thank my co-hosts for uh, accommodating me. Obviously, it was a, a difficult time. Um, and so the weather's turned to chilly 75 degrees during the day here in Newport Beach and a frigid 65 at night. So we know winter's coming. <laughs> but uh, seriously, it's the fall. And for me, that's all about football season. Football, high school football, college football, pros, I love it all. But when I was a kid, this was also pilot season and series return time. So all the shows came back from summer hiatus and new ones were introduced. I mean, that's changed, but there's a lot of new series opening. I was wondering uh, if you guys have anything that you're anticipating. There's, I, I pulled a thing from the calendar in the Time, LA Times. There's 34 new shows opening between now and November 23rd. So it kind of be, uh, belies the idea that there isn't a, a pilot season because these are all new shows. These are mm-hmm. all new Kind of new, kind of new shows. I mean, Will and Grace is included in this, and that's a. Is it all network? Does that even include I, Netflix, Hulu, Amazon? Yeah, all of them. Like okay. uh, the Orville, that's Fox. Top of the Lake, uh, that's yeah. uh, uh, Sundance. Maybe yeah, not? Sundance. Yeah. 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 Uh, Newton's Law, Riviera, American Vandal. I mean, there's a ton of them. Uh, you here, you guys can see it. There. Oh, and the Inhumans, which is a comic book. Uh, I want everybody to know he's holding up a yeah, newspaper. <laughs> Mary Claire doesn't know what this is. She thinks it's just a really fancy so printer. So it's like someone took the internet and printed it out, um, and, and, and you're just on, carrying that around. Yeah, with well, you yeah, because it's you know it's not linear. I can go anywhere on this page, and I don't have to like uh, swipe. That's it's pretty cool. Well, I don't know if it'll catch on. Though. Yeah, I like to use the old-fashioned way. With the anyway, so anything you guys are looking forward to? Well, that seems less overwhelming. Even though it's still a significant number now that it includes all of those. I am looking forward to Top of the Lake. I was a big fan of the early or the first season, and so I'm glad that's coming back. And I've heard good things about the new season. Um, I tend to wait a bit to hear mm. what the consensus is for some of the network shows. Um, yeah, me too. But, uh, but we shall see. Yeah, actually, we're in, a, we're in an interesting place sort of in time because we have that luxury, and it used to be um, – yeah, like appointments. You had to watch it. Viewing. You had to watch it based. On, remember, they used to run those things before the new season started, where they told you all about all the new right, shows. Right. I remember as a kid, it was uh, it was Lloyd Bridges. <laughs> Lloyd Bridges walking around with like a cigarette in one hand and a cup of coffee in the other, and like literally like the character from Airplane, just talking about new show. There's a new show about a woman that works <laughs> in a diner. Her name's Alice. You're gonna love it. It's gonna be on about three o'clock on uh, Thursdays. Mark yeah. that down. Anyway, Write that down uh, on your paper. What calendar. about crime shows? And that was and that was it. And you just kind of you, you had to get it. Sort of like movies. You had to get it from the trailer. You know, you were out. But now we get to watch it. We get to figure out if people are gonna like it or not. And uh, I'm kind of surprised that there's that many shows previewing in the fall, considering. How many other series? I mean, Netflix releases a series a week. It seems mm-hmm. like you know, yeah. and it looks like where are all these other ones coming? And why are they why are they scheduled slotted in for the fall? Is what I was. We still have that. The, the actual the, the the way that the seasons for television were established has a lot to do with uh, General Motors. Mm. This is one of those like crazy string of things. Okay. General Motors wanted a way to show off new cars. Mm-hmm. They bring out their new cars in the fall for the next model year. And so that was when all the networks realized, and I think this it, it was it was all television. It was after radio, but it was all television. That was when we'll set up our new shows because that's when we set up set up our new ad rates, and we can put and we can we get can get the car company and like so, Chevy. See the USA. and a lot of times for a successful pilot or first season, they would get cars. Mm, yeah, <laughs> like the cast of Will and Grace got a that a, they each yeah. got an individual car their first year. Mm. Well, that's going to segue me into a show that I'm watching, which. Talk about being late to the party, uh, Entourage. 
Uh-huh. And um, I don't know if I've mentioned it before, but I am so in love with it. I, I binge. I do at least three three episodes a night, and I'm now I'm at that point in the binging where I'm thinking maybe I should dial it back a little bit. But I, I love that <laughs> show. Getting concerned. You're, 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 <laughs> not getting, you're not getting as much sleep as you should. Yeah, I'm, I'm up till two. Leave the house, yeah. maybe. <laughs> I used to go to bed at one. Now I'm up till two. But uh, but I, I just love. I love the show. But I love. The character I truly love is um, the brother, the the Johnny Drama. Johnny Drama. Yeah, Drama. everybody loves I, Johnny Drama. Oh my God, <laughs> he is so incredible. That is such a great role, and I think he won an Emmy for that. I uh, think so. Now, Jeremy Piven definitely did. I don't yeah, know about yeah. Kevin did, Dillon, but did you know that you know Johnny Drama is played by Kevin Dillon, right? Who is Matt Dillon's brother, right? Did it imbue that character with a little gravity when you're like, oh, he really is the brother of someone more famous? <laughs> well, but, you because know. it's based on Mark Wahlberg's. Yeah, so basically he's the Danny like Wahlberg. Donnie. <laughs> Donnie, Donnie, yeah, sorry. Yeah. So heard, he's the Donnie. Yeah, and I heard, but I heard that he was actually based on a cousin who okay. was sent out Probably. there to watch it or something. Yeah, because Donnie Wahlberg is a fine yeah. actor in his own right. I was okay. just thinking. <laughs> if Donnie, no, I agree. If Donnie found out that Johnny Drama was based on him, he might get all upset yeah. and everything. So. Oh, I, I'm, I'm astounded at the I stuff I still use one of the, the lines from the pilot where, you know, they go into the office, Ari's office, and he's like, uh, can I get anybody a drink? And he's like, yeah, I'll take a grape soda or a grape Shasta <laughs> if you have it. And they're like, sit down. <laughs> like, uh, whenever I go anywhere, I'm like, I'll take a grape Shasta. It hits most of the time. what they get away with on the show. It's like, but I mean, some of the people are in on the joke and some of them aren't yeah. but they really come out it's clever yeah yes. so uh, what do you guys what do you guys watching mc um well last sunday so the emmys were on i don't know did you, no, you guys watch those them, but I've heard those are like big days for me the golden globes sags oscars um like those are longer days for me because e-news <laughs> coverage starts like pretty early in the morning um and so um so i like again i take my cues very much so from the award shows and uh and i was a little stressed because i hadn't watched a lot of the big shows that i was that were like expected to do well like big little lies took home you know five emmys um that night and i i did finish that series but the other series um that did well in terms of drama was uh the handmaid's tale uh which won for that won five emmys as well it tied with big little lies so i was kind of like okay i should probably start this um and so it's uh and it was for the first streaming show to win the drama series awards so um so kind of a bigger deal but um but it's based on uh the 1985 margaret atwood book um and it really it's kind of this dystopian you know sort of take on the world that takes place in a totalitarian society wait, in wait, which you say dystopian yeah some people might say i mean i would say yeah <laughs> people i mean that's one of the biggest comments in the series is that it's a little bit more relevant in terms of the new times oh. um it's you know kind of pointed out that it has sort of that newfound relevance given the presidency under which, you know, many sectors of the society are expressing anxiety over losing their rights. And that's what happens in the show. It's, um, you know, it's, it's supposedly the society which was formerly the United States. It's now called Gilead. Um, and in the wake of kind of these environmental disasters, lower infertility rates, um, you know, no birth rate, et cetera, they really they take away or they create this fundamentalist regime that treats women as property of the state. Um, and so the few women that are still fertile are basically turned into baby making machines and and slaves of you know some of the more higher powered commanders uh in the show they're called handmaids and so it's really told from the perspective of one character elizabeth moss who's great she won as well and um and they're kind of put into you know forced sexual servitude um and so it's it's I mean, the stakes are real high, you know, within the series. Do you, think the, um, do you think the popularity has something to do with the political situation? I mean, potentially. I mean, I do think the drama is really compelling itself. Um, I think the story is even more powerful, even just without the parallels. You know, it would still be a standout drama. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, I mean, there is a line even within the first episode where um, – one of the aunts, which is somebody who they kind of educate the women in terms of the new system. Um, she says, you know, ordinary is what you're used to. This may not seem ordinary to you now, but after time it will become ordinary and, and it's terrible things. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I do think it is relevant, but, um, but the themes are, are pretty terrifying and the world is really unique. I, I find it really interesting. I, I thought it was going to be a, a lot harder to watch than it is, which is kind of terrifying even for me to say that. But, um, but I just think that the, the characters in the world are really fleshed out. So it's just, it's just sort of an interesting take i don't know yeah i i have real problems with dystopian fiction period doesn't matter if it's television movies i i i really buy none of those scenarios except for all-out thermonuclear mm-hmm. war so i i've been resisting watching it but because it did so well at the emmys and because it's so highly thought of i'm gonna have to check yeah it out. i think there are some questions that they haven't answered um you know when it comes to the world but um 
you know, even when it comes to maybe how race plays a part into this new world, like they don't answer a few a few things, mm-hmm. which have been some comments on the series. But um, but I do think um, I mean it is sent set present day and it is sort of like how did this happen but is it possible that this could happen i don't know yeah yeah i mean also we talked about it a little bit i know we'll be talking about it later um i i i tentatively would put this under science fiction no it would have to be yeah science fiction is uh at its heart an allegory it's a mirror Mm -hmm. uh a dark mirror now available Ah. on netflix Mm -hmm. and uh um so yeah I, i i think the the, the truth of it is below the surface. You know, the, the, the superficiality of it, that's the, that's the candy coating that lets us believe it's not true. Mm-hmm. But what it's saying often is. And, um, yeah, I've had some interesting conversations recently. Uh, a couple of my coworkers who are young women in their early 20s, mm-hmm. and they've watched the show and, uh, um, you know, to crabbily use a phrase that's very popular, they got woke – <laughs> and they were talking about this, and I'm like, "This is great because we could not have this conversation about an episode of Deep Space Nine that addressed, <laughs> uh, you know, gender stereotypes." But you've seen, you've seen uh, *Handmaid's Tale*. You want to have a conversation about it, and um, I think that's, I think that's really when what we do uh, in, in writing and in, in any kind of media production is, yeah, is bring people together to have a conversation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, well, to start, yeah, to start to bring awareness, and that's why sci-fi has always been one of my favorites. Yeah. Yeah. Because it it does leap over those barriers with uh, with very little regard. Yeah, it's, it slips right past. Yeah. It's, it's that's how it works. What are you watching? Too? Okay, now to the other end of the extreme. Uh, I've been watching. I, I got a. This is actually a recommendation from my mom, and uh, so take that with a, a, a spoon of sugar. Uh, it's a show called Doctor Foster. Uh, first season is available on Netflix. Uh, it's a five episodes. It's a British show. I can't recall if it's BBC or, or independent ITV. But it's a five-episode season. It's a completed arc, so there's none of that cliffhanger shenanigans to worry about. Uh, it's a fascinating show. Basically, anything I tell you about it sort of gives starts giving stuff away. But um, <laughs> the first episode begins where a woman, Dr. Foster, suspects that her husband is having an affair. And uh, it kind of deals with, uh, in a very modern... It's also interesting because there are cultural differences in, in the U.K. versus the U.S., but... You, you, you get through that, you sort of see, like I said, the underlying truth. Uh, it's very interesting how it does it. And you got to get through the first episode because the first episode really, and, and only because I would want people to watch it, I kind of kind of give this away, but it's like you're going to watch it and it starts really laying down familiar tread. It's just like, oh, she thinks that her husband's cheating on her, but she can't really tell. This mm-hmm. looks like it's incriminating, but it's also explained away. And... Uh, but by the end of the episode, they really kind of turn – because you think the whole thing is going to be, geez, are we going to be like this all, all – I can't think for all five episodes and then go – and at the end, it turns out, you know, it was right. all a dream. Right. I'm like, I'm not, mm-hmm. not going to be able to deal with that. Yeah, and I was yeah. fully prepared to tell my mom, like, I gave it one episode and it was terrible. But it wasn't. And at the end, it really uh, – it, it sets up every convention. And then, as I said uh, – I was telling before we recorded – you go. It takes the, sh- the show takes you right up to the door of that convention where you know. Oh, I've seen this a million mm-hmm. times, and then it it just goes to the left or it goes to the right, and it goes. We're going to avoid that convention. We're going to go this way, and so suddenly it it gave everything a, a kind of a reality or credibility because it flipped. It flips a lot of three act. Each episode is very self contained, but it flips a lot of three act structure and that kind of thing, and it sets you back on your heels and. Regardless of the content, although I thought the content was very good, that was very entertaining. It was it was a weird like, um, you know, the brakes aren't quite working. You know, like, <laughs> oh, this is exciting. We could all die, but it's a little exciting. And the show did a pretty good job of maintaining that uh, for five episodes. Yeah, you said similar things about Happen Leonard about how you didn't know who the bad guy was, and it kind of twisted and turned as it went through, which which I yeah. really enjoyed. The, did the second season start? Or is it second, second season is out. Okay. Um, it, it was on – the second season of Happen Leonard was on uh, – we're just talking about it. Oh, no, Sundance? No, Sundance Channel. Uh, second season was a lot different than the first but a very pleasant – and I do know from an inside source that season three is currently in production. Cool. Well, I have to check out Dr. Foster and definitely – is it Handmaids or Handmaiden – the Handmaid's Tale. Handmaid's, Handmaid's Tale. Tale. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think I misspoke earlier. Yeah, I, I think she Absolutely. did last week or last time we were well, there. Well, but they were no. all terrible people. <laughs> yeah, well, you guys, you know, that's why I that work with you, you because you're, you're losers. 
Um, okay, so today I, on my focus segment, I'd like to focus on not a writer or a specific film, uh, but a franchise that spans both television and film. Uh, it's engendered parodies. It has massive merchandising behind it, con- huge conventions, and it continues to reinvent itself for over 50 years. I'm talking about Star Trek. Oh, geez. One, two, let's try that again. I'm One, talking two, about three. Star Trek. Star Trek. All right, yeah, okay. which, no, which Mary Claire has never seen. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to do that. I've never seen an episode. But well, you, could, <laughs> yeah. you could play along. It's just two I words. I don't want to. You could have joined <laughs> uh, Well, the latest v- version of Star Trek premieres uh, Sunday night on CBS television and then goes to CBS streaming, which is a pay service. I think it's called uh, Star Trek Discovery. And whether or not that business model about paying for uh, the TV series proves to be successful is yet to be seen. But there's no doubt it's a massive amount of anticipation for the newest entry into a universe conceived by master storyteller Gene Roddenberry. Roddenberry was a successful TV writer who had written dozens of episodic TV scripts. I I never heard of most of these, but like Highway Patrol, Mr. District Attorney, I Led Three Lives, West Side, Boots and Saddles. Um, if you look at his IMDP page, he has 105 credits as a writer. I, I think he, there are a lot of attributions also. Um, frustrated at what he perceived were the limitations of what could be done on the network on issues like biracial relationships, political commentary, and hot-button topics of the day, including the highly charged Vietnam War, in 1964, Roddenberry put his interracial crew of explorers in outer space seeking new worlds of creative freedom. Some have called Star Trek Wagon Train in Outer Space, and that is certainly true. However, uh, I never saw Wagon Train either, but um, Roddenberry first, Roddenberry's first thought was, wasn't the episodic tales of trekking around the galaxy, but at crafting episodes that allow social issues to be examined. Other writers of the time, like Rod Serling from The Twilight Zone, also sought more creative freedom. Both Serling and Roddenberry founded in science fiction a fact, a fact that I find most inspiring. It might seem strange to us today that even a kiss between a woman of color and a white man was forbidden on television, but in the mid-60s, this was the case. Certainly things were changing in the world, and it was inevitable that mass entertainment would follow, but the first interracial kiss on television was a 1968 Star Trek episode called Plato's Kiss between Lieutenant Uhura and Captain James T. Kirk. An anecdote that I heard on a show about Star Trek was the network had okayed the kiss and then gotten cold feet because of pressure from the sponsors. The cast was told on the day of filming that the actual kiss would not be shown. Shatner suddenly messed up every take on the scene except for the one in which he actually kisses Nichelle Nichols. When they examined the footage, the producers had no choice but to go with the scene with mm-hmm. the actual kiss in it. And so that Shatner was responsible for that. History was made and it wouldn't be the only barrier Star Trek shattered. Besides the interracial kiss, I recall one episode of Star Trek where two aliens are brought on board. Their skin is both black and white. They're split right down the middle. However, one is black-white and the other is white-black. And they hate each other. They're mortal enemies, which makes no sense to the crew. It's really a not-so-subtle hint from Roddenberry that racism is ridiculous. And Roddenberry was almost able to do this in outer space, even if he could not on present-day Earth. Also, a first-season episode called Taste for Armageddon was one of TV's first allegories for the war in Southeast Asia, the Vietnam War, and that was just beginning to roil the country. Another famous episode is I, Mud, where societal standards of beauty are parodied and given the full light of day examination. This and others made Star Trek special for its day and perhaps go to explain why it lasted over 50 years. Um, The... The crew of the uh, Starship Enterprise, you know, it's been a cliche for years that it was manned by an international group, including a Russian, a Scot, an Asian, an African-American woman. But again, this was groundbreaking at the time. I don't think any shows had this type of interracial uh, intermingling for the, for the uh, central characters. And it's, there just didn't exist this ex- inclusivity in the world of television and barely in the world at, at all. Despite its groundbreaking narratives, after the second season, Star Trek was canceled, but an effort by the fans, almost 6,000 letters a week, convinced ABC to renew it. The fan letters were comprised of the individuals you expect, the normal geeks and and people, but they also included scientists, doctors, teachers, and other white-collar professionals. There was a third season, but the show was moved to Friday 10 p.m., which fairly guaranteed its death. And they, NBC greatly reduced its budget, which created less of a demand for high-quality writers. We've talked about jumping the shark, and apparently the third season of Star <laughs> Trek is a shark jumper. Um, 
uh, Star Trek died after finally after 79 episodes, and that might have been the end of it if it wasn't for its rabid fan base, the precursor of the Comic Cons of today. At one time, there were dozens of Star Trek fan conventions. I probably still are. I don't know. Uh, do do yeah, they still I, have Trek they, conventions? There have to be. I don't. <laughs> know. I think they seem to be. <laughs> or it's merged. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. they've merged into more. But like but with a Comic Con, yeah, yeah, Malcolm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, the fans, uh, you would memorize the most arcane bits of Trek lore, quoting dialogue and ship specifications. They were called Trekkies, and they still are. Shatner himself appeared on Saturday Night Live to yell at the Trekkies to get a life. And I'll, I'll put that link to that episode in the show notes. A brilliant send-up film called... Star Trek? Wait, Galaxy well, Quest? Galaxy Quest. <laughs> Galaxy Quest. And that's the, one I've, the only one I've seen, and I didn't even realize it was... <laughs> It's a take on Star Trek, and I thought it was amazing. I love that film. Yeah, that was a, that was. I thought that was. It's still a brilliant film. We yeah. just watched it not too long yeah. ago. After the series ended, several movies were made with the original cast, including some what some consider the best Star Trek movie ever. That would be Star Trek Two: Wrath of Khan. <laughs> Wait, In I thought fact, the Benedict Cumberbatch one. I, <laughs> just kidding. When you get to hell. <laughs> Be sure and tell them I said hi. Okay, so I'm going to challenge you to a film fight. I'm going to take the Cumberbatch one, and you can take the Wrath of Khan. The only reason I don't really want to do that is uh-huh. by dignifying your <laughs> argument with my rebuttal. Okay. Come at me, bro. Uh, <laughs> sorry, why did you say it again? Uh, anyway, was I? And in fact, a friend called me the... Oh, never mind about that. Okay, what? so there was an animated se- series after the original that lasted for two seasons, and I'm ashamed to say I've never seen any of the episodes. Animated series is excellent. Many of the episodes are considered canon. And, and yes, ladies, I am single. <laughs> <laughs> Star Trek The Next Generation, or TNG as it's called, was the next major installment in the Star Trek universe uh, television series. It took place in a time about 100 years after the original timeline and lasted for seven seasons. It was amazing. Roddenberry was still involved as an exec producer on this series. The first season was a little rough around the edges, but it found its stride to last seven seasons and created some truly memorable characters and adventures. In fact, I'm going through all TNG right now. I think I'm on season two or three. During its run, uh, TNG earned several Emmy Awards and nominations, including a nomination for Best Dramatic Series during its final season, two Hugo Awards, which is um, the Hugo is for science fiction um, material, and a Peabody Award for Outstanding Television Programming for the episode The Big Goodbye. It's a really, really, like, it's... It, it shouldn't be the only episode you watch if you're if it's the only episode of TNG you ever check out. But if you watch three, that should be one of them. Okay. All right. Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and Enterprise, which took place in a universe before the original series, followed. Uh, as mentioned, a new Trek series was premiering Sunday, on, Sunday night on CBS. And by the time this podcast airs, it will have been seen. But I'm sure you can also catch it on CBS streaming. There were 13 movies about the Trek universe. Six were done with the original crew. Mm-hmm. Four were done with the TNG crew. In the first movie with the TNG crew called Star Trek Generations, the old crew, uh, Kirk, uh, Sulu, and the boys, and the new crew, Picard, um, Crusher, and uh, Riker, worked together. This is actually a transition from the old series characters to the new gen crew and to the TV series that followed. So I thought that was pretty cool. I didn't love the the movie, but I thought it was a great idea. The latest grouping of three films by J.J. Abrams is a reboot where the origins of the Shatner Enterprise crew are introduced. Chris Pine plays Kirk. Old Spock, Leonard Nimoy, is also seen as his future self. Nimoy died in 2015 after the second movie, but he still makes a digital cameo appearance in movie number 13. If you look at Roddenberry's IMDb page, he's listed as having a lot of writing done that wasn't either the original Star Trek or TNG. In fact, he's even given credit for an X-rated movie called This Ain't Star Trek, XXX, a Hustler production, something I'm definitely tracking down uh, for research purposes, of course. Um, To me, it's simply astounding that one man doing something he loved could have been so completely and utterly utterly prescient to see the potential in something like Star Trek. I'm sure Roddenberry didn't see all the way from 1964 to 2017, but at some point he had a glimpse, he had to have a glimpse of what he created and its amazing impact. The newest Trek series is widely anticipated. It's yet to be seen if it will soar or sink after the initial enthusiasm. I'll certainly watch the first step and report back. I can't wait, actually. I'm watching as many Star Trek episodes I hadn't seen, mostly TNG, to try and be a little better versed when the new series starts. 
Besides not featuring the Enterprise, Discovery has the Star Trek Discovery, the new series, has an openly gay crew member, focuses more on Klingons and their political situation, and takes place about 10 years before the original series. So it predates Kirk and the Enterprise. Mm-hmm. The writers have basically disconnected it from the movie franchise also. They, don't, they, are, they have a human raised by Sarek, Spock's father, as a Vulcan, which should provide for some interesting interactions. Side note, MC, Rain Wilson is appearing as hmm. Mud. And Toby, Nicholas Meyer, who wrote... Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. ...is on board as a writer and consultant, as well as many alumni of the various Star Trek worlds. CBS is dumping 7 to $8 million per episode into this, so it should be solid. There's also a new spoof of the series by Seth MacFarlane called The Orville. I enjoyed the first episode. It's on Fox. I, I think you should check it out. Star Trek's an inspiration. It's beyond success to almost immortality or certainly as close as the entertainment world gets to that lofty phrase. Television, movies, books, comic books that have been continually published since 1967, games, magazines, action figures, toys, fan fiction, not to mention the preponderance of all the merchandise that features a crew of the Enterprise on it. No one can accurately estimate how much money the concept has generated, not even CBS who owns it, but it has to range in the trillions of dollars. It boggles the mind, as does the immense cultural impact. There's an anecdote that Nichelle Nichols tells uh, when she was at an NAACP fundraiser a day after she told Roddenberry that she was leaving the show. She, she was also told there was a big fan waiting, wanting to meet her. She says, I thought it was a Trekkie, so I said, sure. I looked across the room, and there was Dr. Martin Luther King walking <laughs> toward me with this big grin on his face. He reached out to me and said, yes, Ms. Nichols, I am your greatest fan. He said that Star Trek was the only show that he and his wife, Coretta, would allow their three children to stay up and watch. She then mentioned to King her plans to leave the series, and she said, I never got to tell him why, because he said, you can't. You're part of history. When she told Roddenberry what King had said, he cried. I could have easily done another thousand hours on Star Trek. There's just so much about this, what would you call it, universe phenomenon. I mean, words fail. How to explain it, how to truly appreciate a seemingly simple concept that, like Sherlock Holmes, has lasted and thrives for decades unabated. It's possible we'll still be talking about Star Trek for another 50 years. Let me close with the iconic opening from the original series, which I know by heart. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission to explore strange new worlds. To seek out new life and new civilizations. To boldly go where no one has gone before. Indeed we have with Star Trek. So I know MC hasn't seen... Uh, much you saw the first I, movie. I saw the first movie, yeah, the Chris Pine, yeah, yeah, of Chris. Okay, uh, the Chris that's Pine. not the first movie. I know the Sorry, first. I said, J. J. Abrams, the first whatever. movie with J.J. <laughs> yeah. Abrams, yes, yes, which I liked. I thought it was well done. That's the origin. Mm-hmm. That's kind of an origin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. They don't. I've they, never seen. They, they basically reboot the continuity. They create right. an event that negates everything that happened before, which I, I actually was really pretty impressed by. But please. What were you, tell us more about your thoughts. So, I mean, and I feel like that's that's a little bit older now at this point. I mean, I maybe saw it like four years ago. Is uh, that right? It's it's still it's yeah, still very valid. No, it? for sure. I just I don't. I mean, my comments. There's two. There's been two movies after it. One. Yeah, was I mean, I just I, I don't remember much aside from the fact that I really didn't like it. Um, you I did thought, like it? Yeah, I did. Yeah. yeah, I thought it was well written, good story. Um, I liked the characters. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. I thought it was. It was well done. I thought J.J. Abrams did a fantastic job. I would ask, as a favor, and it's completely up to you, but uh, I know you've got a lot going on this (laughs) month, Uh, but if if you get to watch Discovery, because Discovery is uh, presented as you don't have to know anything Mm -hmm. about any of the others, um, and... Because because it's sort of removed from that continuity. It's ten years before. But but then you can watch it completely. You you don't have to bring any pre-existing baggage to it. Which, which Mark and I won't have that luxury. And most people who are going to watch it, are, 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 it's going gonna, it's gonna to have the harshest thing to deal with because it has to deal with something that we've had for years. Um, we've, we've got our own preconceived right. notions of what is and what is not. But you can watch it with fresh eyes, and maybe afterwards we can talk about that. I, I'd be really curious what your take is on it because I know what mine is going to be. Already, unfortunately. Uh, that's you know? what I was going to say. So, yeah, I, I was going to say, but I would be interested to hear what you I guys have to, have to say I can't wait yeah, to see after it. watching so it as well. We, no, I mean, I'm looking forward to it, but I mean, but I know 
I'm going to watch it and go, oh, that character's like this, that character's mm-hmm. like that. They would never do that. You know, you, you can't. I, I, as much of that as I try, as I try to consciously shed, uh, just the way I was raised with Star Trek is, uh, I'm not going to get over that. It's, it's, uh, it's. <laughs> I don't want to compare it to a religious experience or anything, but basically this is like Vatican II. You mm-hmm. get to just kind of jump in and go, fish on Friday is optional. Yeah, but you you liked the J.J. Abrams movies, right? You liked the reboots. Um, I, well, you liked at least the yeah, first reboot. I, I appreciated them. Okay. So, I mean, I don't. I think you're able to go to, to get about I When I saw the reboot, I was astounded. I had no problem with embracing that universe even though spock and uhura mm-hmm. in any of the versions never had an affair i thought that was amazingly good I, there was i mean they tried to kind of get cl- as close to the original characters as possible but yeah. uh, but i mean i thought it was i thought it was wonderful i think you'll enjoy discovery oh, I, I'm, I'm looking I'm, forward to it I, I just but i just know that like every everything else sort of star trekky has been has been ingrained for so long yeah. that you get to watch something. Well, where it's, it's hard to accept even stuff, like new stuff into the canon as well. Yeah. I feel like people are really protective of you know their beloved canons, and so yeah. Well, and, this and, is and, uh, this is ten years before Enter- the, the Enterprise. The, no, still. it's ten years before. Well it's, t- well, it's ten years before Star Trek: The Original right, Series. The, right, the, original the first show is Enterprise, which chronologically is the first Star Trek right. show. But, but th- you said there's one character though that there is potential overlap. Yeah, and that's Sarah. That's no, mm-hmm. well, Sarah, but also Mud. Mud. Well, mm-hmm. Spock's father, who's mm-hmm. a Vulcan, is Sarek, and Sarek is was in the original series, yeah. and I think in uh, was he in Next Generation? Or yeah. Something? Okay. So he's he's listed as 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 raising a human mm-hmm. as a Vulcan, and since Spock had no siblings, they had to make it that way. They couldn't give yeah. him a Vulcan yeah. thing. Well, no, Spock does have a sibling. <laughs> Star Trek Five: Final Frontier. His name is Cybok. Oh, okay. Well, well, that's why it gets difficult. You like, are geek, me. ladies. Just, just go ahead and send in those emails. <laughs> <laughs> well, because even you know, I'm a big Harry Potter fan, and they keep adding to that canon. Mm. And there are things that I don't like that they're adding, and I'm kind of like, I don't want this <laughs> to be real in this universe. Right. Like, Hashtag, I don't like this Hashtag element. Not my Hogwarts. <laughs> I know. Yeah, like, I, I just gonna... think for us to be talking about a series in these kinds of terms, fifty f- how many years after it premiered, just uh, astounds me yeah. and people make fun of the series and they make fun of the you know and there's a lot to be made fun of the first season of tng had me gritting my teeth about every other moment but i think a big problem tng had to get started was the 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 two conflicting instructions were star trek but not like star trek yeah and, and it was and tough. until it became its own thing it, it, it really you know i can't have to well, i'm still i'm still not in love with counselor troy i mean she's a very beautiful woman the but character, her character had a lot of trouble figuring out what to do with her some mm-hmm. of the early episodes she's like a full-on psychic right and then they were just like no that's just that's just too first of all it's a big sci-fi trope but it's just too much like the magic fix for everything mm-hmm. right she's an empath mostly yeah. now so then yeah. they made her an empath and they just made her very sensitive and then you know yeah Boy, did we just geek out on that? Yeah, okay. Right. All right. Anyway, the sight to be seen. I, uh, you, I, I hope you will watch uh, Discovery. It's on tonight. Yeah. Well, is it a half hour or what hour? Is hour which long I, show. Oh, okay. And actually, I believe I'm not sure. Uh, I Mike's think, gonna like it. I think the first. I can't remember. They're doing like a cliffhanger thing where you have to go to CBS All Access to get the second part of the cliffhanger or uh, something. But I think the first two episodes difficult. are meant to be watched together. Just give it a shot. Make it like a t- consider it a homework. I have assignment. a lot. To, the Keeping Up with Kardashians is on tonight. It's their tenth anniversary. <laughs> oh, oh, I saw it. I saw you it. Can, I saw that. Guess what? You Nothing can. really happens. Rob sits on the couch the whole time. Yeah, I time shift. Great idea about time shift it. So we also I'm have kidding. to watch uh, for class. We have to watch Beasts of No Nation. So um, but, oh, okay, this is definitely Beasts of No Nation. I mean, is very heavy. Yeah, yeah. No, I've seen this it. This might be the unicorn chaser. <laughs> this is the antithesis. So. All right. Uh, okay. Well, anyway, uh, guys, I, I love Star Trek. I love the idea of Star Trek. I think it's inspirational. I'm, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm always cognizant of the quote by Joseph Campbell about follow your bliss. And if you're on the golden path, you will make money. And apparently Gene Roddenberry jumped on that golden path and never got off. So. Well, I, I think, and that's to dilute what you just said, but I think one of the things to remember about what was effective about the original show was – um, especially with sci-fi, and especially when sci-fi is on TV, it's it's often pretty much dismissed as for kids. Couldn't have been better for that show to do because people who were young and they got into Star Trek, they saw the normalization of uh, interracial relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, they saw the normalization of women in positions of, of uh, authority, right. that kind of thing. And so I, I think 
it, it can't be uh, understated that Roddenberry's show was, gosh, what's the word? Like, groundbreaking? Groundbreaking. Prolific. But I also want to say sort of insurgent. Mm. <laughs> you know, like, no, you're right. Because That's it was good. like, That's look, good... you know, if, if you watch the new. So much of that show was just really pulled from the news, mm-hmm. but playing a little bit of Mad Libs here and well, that's there. Well, that's what the, he's always claimed, that he wanted to go into outer space in order to be able to write the material that he wanted to write, yeah. which was, which was you know, basically boycotted by the network because it was 1964. Yeah. I mean, we were, the Beatles barely existed back in 1964. There was still a revolution in, to come. So, the, so a great writer, Roddenberry. Just like Rod Serling says, how do we tell the stories of our time? Mm-hmm. But, but you know, there's already the news. So, so I think right now, especially, we're in, a, we're in an interesting place where we'll find a way to tell stories about now through allegory, through uh, oh, the Handmaid's Tale. You know, exactly, mm-hmm. and and that's uh, and that's why again, why I love sci-fi, why I've always loved sci-fi, is because you you're allowed that allegorical uh, tapestry to work your your magic on. So anyway. All right, so uh, we're going to shift into our Q&A. We have a couple questions. We did have a question that was called in. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you want me to do that now, Toby? Yeah, or? if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, let me see if I can call this up on my phone. Um, Again, while Mark pulls that together, you can give us a call at 919-SCRIPTS, and we might play your question on the air, Okay, like this one. Hey, this is Mark. Uh, I was just wondering, where do I start when developing a story? Uh, when you write a script, do you usually start with the character, plot point or specific ending you want to reach? Thanks. Um, I think that's a good question. Yeah. There, there really is no, no set answer for something like this. It just, for me, um, I tell the story about this uh, concept that came to me when I was talking to a friend and I was pitching him my concept and he was pitching me his concept. And we, we both realized that we liked each other's concepts as opposed to our own, so we, we swapped. Mm-hmm. But when he pitched me his concept, I saw this silhouette of this guy in a doorway with a gun hanging down by his side. And this was be- way before uh, Matrix, but that's the kind of image I got. And it, the whole story just appeared to me from that, from that one image. So you start with your concept or you start with your character. Let's say you want to write, um, write about doctors. You have to come up with a different doctor. You can't – well, I mean you can write about regular doctors like Grey's Anatomy and stuff, but, but you, you kind of need to get uh, conceptually into a different flow. Like I always thought um, – like I, I always thought nurses would be a good subject and, of course, Nurse Jackie is a great show, although she is so dysfunctional. It's hard, hmm. to, uh, it's hard to get behind her, but I have a feeling that's very true, um, true to life. And so there's lawyers, there's doctors, there's cops, there's – there's judges. I mean, Quincy was a coroner. So if you start with the character, a lot of times the concept writes itself because it's going to follow those constraints. If you start with a, like I read constantly, and so and I keep um, ideas on my desk, and I'm constantly looking at them. But a lot of times I don't have a story for them. Like I just read today uh, in the magazine Scientist about uh, amyloid plaques and how and what they're trying. They're thinking that they're caused by a virus. A brain virus that Alzheimer's is not actually a protein; it's the result of a viral uh, infection. It is proteins, but it's a viral infection that's making those proteins do that. And so I thought that was that's a great idea for a you know like a brain virus. And I can't remember what the name, what the article. Well, anyway, but I don't have a story for that. I, I can't think of what I want to do, so I put that aside. But some things just present themselves, and I get an immediate story. There was again, there was a title that just. I can't remember what it was, but it just it's so evocative. So for me, and I can't say for anybody else, but for me it comes about on all different levels. Like I might get an idea from a news article. I might get uh, a character from a friend. Um, a friend of mine um, years ago and I collaborated on a movie called Virus about a what they call a temporary doctor who's a doctor who goes from hospital to hospital and fills in for the doctors that are on vacation. And I thought that would made that would have made not only a great series, but it made a, a pretty good script. And then his high concept was the mafia or the organized crime has taken over the medical profession, and so they're killing people who are costing the insurance company a lot of money. And so, you know, those are those are ideas that come to you, and then you think, well, what characters and stuff. So, I'm sorry, I'm rambling about this, mm-hmm. but there's just no set yeah, path. Yeah. You know, there's just none. 
Um, I, I don't know how you guys, I mean, I know MC's tried a couple things with... Uh, yeah, a lot of times, I mean, starting with the character is what's most helpful for me. I think character really drives plot, and so, like, which, what you said earlier, and uh, and that's typically where I start. But I like to read a lot of news articles as well. Like, a lot of times there are smaller stories you there that you can expand. Not familiar with the newspaper, but... It's a, um, it's a physical <laughs> internet thing. Mark was talking um, about. But, you know, there are a lot of sites that are dedicated to weird news, and, yeah. um, and so I, I like to read a lot of those articles to see if there's anything um, that I can insert here there when it comes to different stories that I'm looking at, but um, but a lot of times I, I have to start with the character. Well, you're a huge Pixar fan, so a lot of Pixar movies are based in character, mm-hmm. not concept. Yeah. I mean, Up is based in yeah, character. entire character right. study, um, pretty much. Same with like Wally. I mean, pretty much uh, Ratatouille, Moana, or Remy. Mm-hmm. I mean, Moana has a plot, but it's based in. I think they started with the idea. Well, Moana's Moana's a princess, right? She's mm-hmm. one of the Disney princesses, so. Um, I, th- I think the, the, the t- sort of to bring it back to that question, there's really kind of two ways to address it is you cannot schedule inspiration. Mm-hmm. So if something inspires you, it's just going to hit you. So you can't you can't really sit and, and tap the table waiting for that. But if you really want to get serious about writing, you have to create exercises for yourself. And, and yeah, uh, mm-hmm. reading news, watching, uh, you know, there, there's a thing I remember people talked about it um, uh, when when someone asked President Bush at one point like what he liked to read, and he didn't really have an answer, and the thing was that uh, uh, leaders, oh boy, what was it? Leaders read. Gosh, well, I'm going to cut this out so I don't sound like an idiot. <laughs> but basically, it comes down to this: like, leave it in. To, to be a, to be a good writer or to write effectively, you have to read or you have to consume stories right. to get stories. Like unless you're you're literally just waiting for God to just right. lightning bolt into the back of your head. Um, so so unfortunately, there's not a quick and easy answer apart from. You know, where do you start? You start at the beginning. You start with the first thing that popped into your head. Yeah, I, for me, I think if you're if you're if you're blocked, if you have a writer's block, write an episode of a series that you that you like, and then see if that inspires something that that can do. I mean, that's a little off topic, but um, anyway. Well, actually, just from that, yeah. Um, recently, I had to work on a project. Uh, I, I know that uh, I can't remember who it was, but to get through writer's block, they were rewriting something. Mm. They were just quite literally reading it and transcribing it and doing the mechanical reproduction yeah. and letting that go letting the words of, of uh, you know it was like uh, it was like the great Gatsby mm. mm-hmm. but you let that go through you and you type it and then you're thinking about the words in a way beyond the physical and and that really worked I was working on a project recently where I had to re-edit an existing project that was a, a film someone else's film and we were cutting it down to make it more uh, sort of family friendly kid safe. And you really have to get into that film in a way that, to be blunt, because I'm not going to say what the film was, the film doesn't really deserve anymore. But I had to know that film Mm -hmm. because I had to take something out of it and still have it work. And that was very um, uh, inspiring apart from like, boy, if if I had to sit down and make this film that I don't think is very good, I bet I could do a really good job. (laughs) All right. We went a little off topic, but uh, all good. I thought was uh, the discussion was really good. Okay. Uh, by the way, in case you didn't know it, Toby is a professional editor. He's worked years in the industry. He knows his shit. So, what um, else? So, next question: um, At what point did you decide to go for it in terms of you know being a professional writer? Was it? Um, you know, somebody that encouraged you to sort of go, you know, take that step or was it something within yourself? Like, was there a particular moment? When did you sort of make that leap? You know, yeah, for me, it's like the reason I quit smoking cigarettes when I smoked was because I heard when you quit smoking cigarettes, you gain 10 pounds. Um, And but I then I became a vegetarian, which they say makes you lose 10 pounds. So it was a zero something. It wasn't for any specific health reason. And I became a writer because I didn't know what else to do with my life at the time that I was doing that. So for me, becoming a writer, I, as I look back, I was preparing my whole life to become a writer. Uh, and some people get that inspiration earlier than others. I was 33 before I started writing, period. And so I was kind of late to the game. But that's okay because um, I've had some really great experiences. And I think I was older enough to appreciate uh, some, of, some of what I did. I mean, I ended up buying a BMW and... You know, mm-hmm. an Armani, couple Armani suits and stuff like that. So that was that was a little bit of the kid in me, but um, it was also they were also business decisions. Yeah. Um, but I I didn't have any specific calling to tell you the truth. I feel like I do now, but I didn't when I started. Um, but it, it, 
But I think if you want to be a writer, you have to understand that it's not I, – in fact, I talk about that in the, in the last uh, segment. Um, it's not for the faint of heart. It really isn't. It's hard to make a living at being, at being a writer. So I think if I had known how difficult it would be, if I could take my present self and go back to my past self and talk, I, would, I, may, I may have chosen a different path. Okay. Yeah. But would you say that it's fair, and I, I, I want you to give yourself some credit, is the pursuit of writing as a, as a, as a, as a career, it's one of the only careers where everything you've done up to that point really is job training. Yeah. Well, also, the other thing that, that the blessing in being a writer is every book I write, I mean, every book I buy, every television series and movie I watch, there that's all research. Mm-hmm. So me sitting in front of the television is not me being lazy like other people. It's being doing research, although a lot of times it's just Although me being to lazy. the untrained eye, <laughs> it looks just the same. <laughs> well, I'm like that, uh, that employee that Henry Ford... It was showing around the factory, and the guy was sitting there with his feet up on the desk, and the guy said, what are you paying that guy for? And he goes, he saved me like a million dollars last year, so he can sit there with his feet up on the desk anytime he wants. So, so uh, yeah, so there been a, there's obviously benefits. There's never going to be a time where I'm going to say I'm, I regret being a writer, but I will say that the financial aspects of it as I get older – uh, not so much when I was younger, but as I get older, are are quite daunting, mm-hmm. and I'll, I'll cover a little bit of that in the uh, in the last segment because um, okay. I talk about that a little bit. Any other? Another yeah, question? one last question. Um, so, what do you maybe watch more of? You know, newer movies or older uh, classic films, and how does that sort of impact your writing? Mm. I, boy, I wish I had a good answer for that. I don't <laughs> really, I don't really have a plan. Um, I am currently watching Friends. Again, Entourage, which is not that old. Um, I've been watching the Mary Tyler or the Dick Van Dyke show. Uh, you know, like I'll go back and we, I, we just did in class, we just did Texas Chainsaw Massacre because of uh, Toby's comment about Toby Hooper, mm-hmm. uh, which was amazing. So uh, going back and looking at the origins of some of these really, you know, amazing, I'm watching Star Trek The Next Generation also. So I, I kind of like vary it, but uh, I also feel like the further you get away from your world, the the less validity your writing has. And it's really hard to say that I could write anything like – well, we talked about Friends. I mean Friends – Friends is, was wonderful, but it's it's very dated. It's you know they're, they're, all their cultural references are the '90s, and so you can you can get the sense of it and the the joy of it, but you can't really. And I don't know the, how much validity it would have for somebody like Mary Claire, mm-hmm. um, because I lived those 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 t- those times. So I I kind of vary it depending on what I'm like. We're going to watch Beast, Beast of No Nation for mm-hmm. class. No Nation for class, and that's a very contemporary movie. And I'm a huge fan of Idris Elba anyway. Well, yeah, so. it's, it's hard because I do think you have to sort of strike a balance because what's new is what's selling also. Mm, right. And so um, so it's nice to have You have to be the, aware of Yeah, it exactly. And an understanding of what these concepts are, what people are watching um, to cater it a little bit, I think, too. Yeah, sort of how you're writing. Yeah. One of the things you brought up mo- a moment ago, Mark, that I thought was very salient was you talked about writing outside of your world. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things as a writer, you know, when you talk about watching a newer film versus an older film, which is kind of where the question came from, is you have to... Uh, it, you're not going to do an effective job of writing outside your world. The trick is expand your world. Mm. Um, you know, learn learn those different things. Learn. I, I, currently, I'm watching a lot of. Um, I mean, I'm sort of forcing myself, but I'm watching things that wouldn't normally appeal to me because I want to know why people right. like them. Mm. Um, you I, never I, figure that some, out. Yeah, sometimes it's it really is exasperating. There's a lot of stuff. Some of the most popular stuff on television, and I'm like, I, I just don't get this. Why do people get it? And I look, and then I ask people, you know, and I try not to be judgmental about it, um, but I'm like, what do you watch? How do you watch it? Why do you watch that? What does that say to you? Not because I'm going to go back and write a knockoff of that, but just I want to understand know, the problem. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing you'll find is that um, a lot of people are not particularly demanding about what they want to be entertained yeah. by. Mm-hmm. They want That's they want true. something that will take them away. My dad was like that. And 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 there's some there is. You know, we can argue the artistic merit of that, but it doesn't matter. There's a lot of people that are just – they just want to watch something. Uh, and also, especially with situation comedies, they want to watch something that's not smart because they're going to make up the joke before the guy on TV makes mm-hmm. up the joke and then they feel better about right. their lives because it's just 30 minutes of an entire day of something else. Yeah, I, I'm, I mean that's a tip a little bit cynical, not to say that you are, but no, I mean I, it's – I, I just – I can't see it that way. I just think that – 
I agree that some people just want to shut off their heads and just watch something that allows them to. And but I'm guilty of that too. I mean, even if it's smart comedy, uh, you know, really smart comedy like Modern Family or mm-hmm. or um, yeah, Thirty Rock, or Entre- any, yeah, yeah, Entourage or Thirty Rock. I'm still wanting to shut my brain off, you know. So I think that just varies according to we study film, we study television, we live and die. I mean. Uh, Miss Emmy over there, you know, spends the whole day. She gets her, uh, you know, her plates of cheese and crackers and just sits there. And it's pretty much, no, what I, it don't looks like. what, I don't know what. I don't know what. But I mean, the point is, is most people don't care because they don't. They're they're only interested in being somewhat entertained. And uh, yeah. so, but I I have the same problem. I I look at filmmakers and movies and wonder how the f did that person. Why is that per- – you know one person in particular, right? You guys know me. So there's one person in particular that I cannot figure out, and uh, it's J.J. Abrams. No, it isn't. <laughs> I love J.J. Abrams. Yeah. I want to meet J.J. I want to work for you, J.J. Abrams. Mm-hmm. Call me. So, All right. Let's, uh, let's move into um, what's uh, the well, – I don't know what this – this is this week, this month, this whatever yeah. in film yeah. – in television and film history. Yeah, uh, it's what funny you, you mentioned – uh, a few TV shows you mentioned, Friends, that had um, that premiered 23 years ago this week, oh, and wow. uh, yeah, created by David Crane and Marta Hoffman. It lasted for 10 seasons. Oh, um, you can't escape Friends; like it very much is everywhere <laughs> on TV. It's on Netflix, um, and it really, you know, it was sort of lauded as the first true ensemble show. You know, the the cast members and the writers made a real effort to keep that ensemble format and not allow one member to sort of dominate each, each show or a particular episode. And, uh, and I do think it is, you know, it is a bit dated. I've watched a few episodes and it's sort of like, you know, it still rings true of that time and it's funny in its own merits. But, um, but I do think a lot of other shows have tried to replicate, you know, the formula a lot as well. I mean, how I, I met your mother, couple, yeah. even like the big bang theory, you know, it's like the six characters, you know, who are friends, there's sort of internal dynamics, um, you know, a little bit di- Similar or similar in similar ways, but um, but but yeah, twenty three years ago. Wow. Yeah, that's I mean that's a show that uh, really did have a big effect on culture. It was a, it was a really popular show at the time, mm-hmm. where none of those all, those were all people that had been in other things before, but none of them were particularly well mm-hmm. known. They were not household names. Now they all are household names. And uh, I just remember the the impact on the culture, not just things like. Rachel's haircut, which is a big thing. <laughs> That's right. But, That's always a trivia uh, question. But, but some of the some <laughs> of just some of the the punchlines to some of the jokes really became. Uh, well, that thing that they do where they, yeah, they, where they say, oh, yeah. when we were on a break, like all yeah. of like, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like. Uh, and, and luckily there was not a huge uh, spate of people getting pet cappuccino. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, we're, I'm done, are, I just finished with that whole series. I'm so glad that that's, that yeah. monkey's gone. It was made Marcel, me nervous. Poor Marcel. Yeah. Poor Marcel. <laughs> but you know, Marcel actually was the same monkey as the monkey in Breakout. In uh, not break outbreak. Oh, really? It was a very yeah. talented monkey. Yeah, but yeah I, that I, monkey had a career all his own. Yeah, no kidding. What else? Um, Full House, also 30 years ago uh, this week. Wow. That originally ran for eight seasons from 1987 to 1985. Um, and then it's been revived recently. It's on its third season, which I didn't even realize. I sort of thought it was still in its first, but it's on Netflix called Fuller House. Following third the season? Two- yeah. yeah. It premieres, I think, this this month, right? They are, they are shorter are- run seasons, but it's... Oh. Yeah, they are. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's funny that we were talking about this. A lot of times people talk about this series having been so successful because it's a show that makes people feel good. You know, nowadays, probably more than ever, it's a good thing to be able to forget about the world's problems and come to the Tanners and the Fullers, which has that sunnier, happier vibe. And, you know, it's not sarcastic. It's not cynical. It's just good natured fun. Um, so now is the um, new series, cause I, I never watched the old one or the new one is, is that, um, does that have all the original cast members? It does, members? But minus Mary Kate and Ashley. Twins, right? Yep, minus Mary Kate and Ashley. Uh, well, but everybody's back. Everybody, including John Stamos. Yeah, Bob Saget, Dave Coulier. Wow. <laughs> all members, yeah, okay. of the show. Yeah, this is actually kind of chalking up to what I was saying earlier about, like, first of all, I'm very concerned about our fixation with nostalgia, mm-hmm. which kind of includes Star Trek as well, but still, uh, that's a show I never understood <laughs> the appeal of. Uh, it's for me, even as a young adult, I'm like, this seems like Disney channel. It seems like it was aiming low, but it was very, very popular. Well, yeah, I, mean, I watched it. Really I, de- I definitely watched that. That was, was part of my Friday night lineup. For sure. were, there was House. murder. She wrote and Quincy and, and, uh, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of dramas that are like that too. They're just very simple, yeah. straightforward narrative tales. So yeah, I never watched, I never, did you ever watch it? I didn't watch it. Well, a, a full, I, pr- I probably watched one or two episodes just to, but honestly, just to throw my hands up and go, yeah, I, 
I don't get this. And it, it's hard to say it without sounding snobby because I know people really like it. Mm-hmm. And I, I, sure, we like mm-hmm. what we like. Um, and if I understood what it was, apart from just a simple, uh, I think you, you, Mary Claire, I think you said pretty nicely, it was very feel good. Mm-hmm. And, and, and perhaps culturally we're at a place where we either need to feel good now or we'd like to be reminded of something that made us well, feel good then. I think we want to feel safe. And mm-hmm. those worlds are safe because there are places where everything's resolved in 22 yep. minutes, yeah. uh, where the people you know they're not going to be you know, backstabbing you know, assholes. Uh, and so they have a lot of, you know, again, you just feel, you feel comfortable. It's like comfort. It's like eating mashed potatoes with gravy or, or something, or your mom's meatloaf or yeah. something like that. And also, it, it, it's a part of a long tradition of 80s sitcoms that begin with uh, the death of a parent. Mm-hmm. Nothing sure. is funnier mm-hmm. than the death of a parent, boys and girls. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing can be funnier than um, any movies. Yeah, and then um, kind of on the flip side, more dramatic turn, the Shawshank Redemption mm. premiered 23 years ago on September 23rd in 1994. Um, wow. when, and when it premiered, it barely registered at the box office. Um, you know, it kind of flopped in terms of that. And it had sort of its second coming through the Academy Awards, although it kind of came up shorthanded that night, uh, something my mother talks about constantly. <laughs> like, because Forrest Gump sort of reigns supreme oh. over Shawshank, which is a bigger issue with that. Um, wait, wait, both she great liked, movies. She but, liked... but she loved Shawshank. Yeah, I was so upset that it didn't get kind of its oh, due when it her. came to good the Academy her. Awards. <laughs> Instead, Forrest Gump won everything that night, which again is a great movie as well, but I think. Just not happy that Shawshank didn't get its due, but um, but and then sort of yeah, second coming on TV. That's another movie that's on TV constantly. That's where I first saw it as well. I saw it on TNT um, and made the mistake of starting it at midnight one night, not really not understanding <laughs> it, it, that it was like a three-hour-long yes. movie. Yeah, and I just remember, I and I and I didn't and I watched it the whole way through with commercials also. Oh, <laughs> I both watched God. it the whole way through, so and all of a sudden it was like three in the morning. I was like, all right, that was pretty worth it. But you know, <laughs> I mean, it is. But wow. I just remember like sort of being like, wait, it's three in the morning. Um, um, but I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop watching it. You know, it's um, it was written and directed by Frank Darabont, mm. um, who who did Walking yeah Walking Dead, Walking which Dead. I didn't even I didn't put that together until I was looking into this, yeah. and um, yeah, and adapted from a Stephen King story that was only ninety six pages long, um, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. But um, but now you know it's obviously it's one of the more you know tops IMDb's top two hundred fifty cinema favorites list. It's right at number one in terms of the spot, wow. um, and uh, and obviously an excellent film in terms of the script and yeah. execution yeah yeah I, I frank i just read an article about frank darabont basically he was he was hot as blazes after shawshank and a couple other things and really does really his walking dead resurrected mm-hmm. his career yeah. he yeah. was apparently you know having well, movies like the mist and stuff i think frank darabont was a guy where the success came late enough because he was also kind of an like on-fire screenwriter right. before he was a director mm-hmm. right. i think he was a guy where the success came late enough that he didn't go hog wild and just yeah. do everything people put in front of him. He definitely curated his career and I, I don't want to you know, I, I don't know the guy to, to put him too high on a pedestal but um, I mean, after Shawshank uh, you sort of have to be careful because, you know, if the follow-up to that I always <laughs> think about, it's terrible because he's such a, uh, he's, he is a good actor but, you know, Cuba Gooding Jr. Mm. Uh, he gets an Academy Award I know, it's too, and it's then a, the film that came a, out that's afterwards Halle Berry too. Okay, is that, uh, yeah, yeah, Halle Berry <laughs> from Monster Football, but uh, he wins an Academy Award and then the following year he does the one where uh, it's it's sort of like the boat movie? The, the boat farce <laughs> movie where oh. it's, no, 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 it's just like where he's, pretty, no, no, because he's really good in that. Yeah, and that was after when he was trying to recover. Oh, yeah, that, <laughs> that, yeah, but you know, so, so, uh, yeah, this ter- that terrible boat movie. Where, I think know, it's called Boat Trip. Yeah, yeah. and Horatio yeah. Sands is slumming in that film. Well, I and mean, I love it, Horatio, you, it's going to be hard. You know, I think any actor, writer, director, it's hard when they throw. In fact, that's what's so interesting about Entourage is because they throw millions mm-hmm. of dollars at this guy and he turns it down. He's, yeah. I think he's well. That's well for Shawshank Redemption too. I didn't realize this, but I was reading Vanity's. Uh, Vanity Fair's piece on sort of the oral history of the making of this movie, Great and so magazine. Frank Darabont, he so he wrote the film, and then they they loved the script. Many people were like, "This is the best script we've ever re- uh, ever read." But he was sort of a newer director, and he was like, "I want to direct it myself." And they told him like they wanted Rob Reiner to direct it, so oh, they were trying wow. to bring yeah. him in. They were going to give him a lot of money to just walk away, to just walk away and Darabont. give this script. Yeah, yeah, to to get, wow. and he said no, like he and he he sort of took on a risky contract to say like I really wanted it. This is my material um, in terms of the script. I mean, he and he wanted to be. Famous 
faithful to the source material from Stephen King, but he wanted to be the one that directed it. And so he took on sort of the, he took less money to be able to do it and uh, to really be faithful to his yeah, vision see, of I, it I overall. Walked away. I, I, think to his, I think to his credit, though, Rob Reiner was, was behind, he, he was, was, was very he supportive. Was, but, yeah, Dar- very Darabont? supportive of the move. Yeah, yeah. Of, of mm-hmm. yeah. yeah mm-hmm. Rob Reiner strikes me as a very lovely man. Yeah. So. Well, he, he was described he, as a mensch in the article. Yeah. A mensch, yeah. I love it. Because yeah. he nailed, you know, he nailed uh, misery. So he mm-hmm. was sort of uh, the studio's go-to guy. Like you understand Stephen King, yeah. right? Like do that this. has anything to do with it. But, but that was that was the the, right. the the misconception was that he would be the safe choice. But he was very supportive of Darabont saying like this. This means a lot to me, and right. it's a it's a fantastic. Film. I love it. It is good. Like good you, choices. I catch that it, that, sh- that shows on at midnight. I'm calling in sick the next day. Cause I'm, <laughs> it's like you yeah. Know. There are a few movies that if it's on, I just have to see it, no matter where it is. Kind of in the, you know, in in the. And in and, and, and the time now where Morgan Freeman voiceover is a, is a pop culture uh, <laughs> uh, phenomena. It's it's a Chrysler. It's a, a family guy makes part it all the time. Yeah, the comedy a, trope is mm. you know anybody anybody who wants to read that mm. joke. But in that film, it's it's spot on. It's perfect, yeah. and yeah. that's one of those things that in screenwriting they say, you know, don't go for the voiceover. The voiceover is a crutch. Not in that film. Well, you know, that, it depends. If you're adapting a book, sometimes that's the only choice you have. It's hard to adapt a book without getting into the voice of the character. So last night I was in a pool where I swim and I was alone. I was the only swimmer in an Olympic-sized swimming pool doing laps, back and forth in the same lane, alone. A metaphor for my life as a writer. But instead of going down the path of introspection, I'm just going to talk about some of the, I don't want to call them nightmares because they aren't, some of the anxieties writers face, myself included. First, there's the whole writing thing. Learning how to write an effective letter is challenging. Learning how to write anything else is horribly difficult. Each form has its own curses. If you're a prose writer, you have to learn how to string together wonderful, evocative words. People who read novels want to disappear in the world you're created. They want to know how the room looks, smells, feels. You have, to, have, to, you have a ton of inner narrative to write, even if it's from an omniscient point of view, so you have to be constantly engaging. People have to love your voice. However, you do have to. You, the, 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 the good side is you do have as long as you want to make your points or to explore a tangent of thought whenever that occurs. Not so screenwriting where brevity is the key. It can't be seen or heard. On, if it can't be seen or heard on the screen, it can't be in the script. It's rare when you can get away with something like he thought about his ex-wife who he was sure was the incarnation of Kali, the goddess of death. Script writing isn't a natural writing form or storytelling. It's probably the most unnatural form of writing anyone can do. You have to set aside your instincts on how to tell a story and relearn that particular skill. Plus, you only have about 100 pages of quite light prose to tell a complete story. That all might take you five years to get right. Then there's the concept thing. The world of Hollywood runs on concepts. You're dead without them. I keep an idea file, uh, or used to uh, once upon a time, whenever I read something interesting, I'd stick it in that idea file for review for when I needed a concept. I love sci-fi. A good portion of my ideas were sci-fi based. Then came the X-Files, which ruined three quarters of my idea file by doing all those concepts in 45 minutes per episode over eight years. Thanks a lot, Chris Carter. So no matter what you think you're coming up with, it's probably either being done, being done, or about to be announced as being done. If I'm at Starbucks, I don't ever talk about what I'm working on. I love to post things of interest to social media, but if I feel it's a good concept that someone else can use, I just don't post it. I jealously guard my concepts because just one can make me rich, and I'll be damned if I'm giving it to someone else. In fact, I had a great point to make on this podcast, but because it would require me to reveal a concept I want to write, I'm not saying. So you're writing scripts like a pro, got a great concept. Now who's going to buy it? Do you understand how quickly decisions are made in Hollywood? Someone can grind through your work in a matter of minutes, so you better be working on that next great concept. But that first means you need to get a meeting with someone who's interested in making the alien romantic comedy you've been so excited about. Have you heard about the movie Hancock or The Unforgiven? Hancock took 11 years to get made. The Unforgiven, over 20. That's assuming, again, that someone has cared enough to read your script and not just peruse the synopsis or coverage. In the series Entourage, a running joke is that Vincent Chase, A-list actor character, is never wanting to read any script, even one that might make him a star. And even if he likes something one day, he doesn't a week later, and he tells his agent he's passing on the role, which probably means the project is dead. Script in turnaround time. And yeah, by the way, everyone is like that. 
actors, producers, executives, and even other writers are guilty of it. Then there's the rewriting parts. You've done the work, got the script read, actually optioned with a production company, who, by the way, is probably still has to sell it to a studio or get funding, so don't buy that Porsche anytime soon. And then you start the most aggravating experience of your career, story meetings. Oh, my God. I'm not a particularly violent man unless some millennial tells me I just don't get it. But there were times where I wanted to seriously throw a beat down on someone. And all three of those were in story meetings on different projects with different producers. I'll save story meetings in detail for another time. But imagine that someone who's maybe not as smart about story and characters as you are telling you categorically that all should how that all should go. I once had a studio exec try to insert, insert a shapeshifter character into one of my scripts. Why? Because it's cool, he said. Never mind that it had no business at all anywhere near my story. I mean, arbitrary much? Then there can be the actual being rewritten, usually by someone not as talented as you are. Now, I'm not saying I'm a great writer, but I'm good, and I know sci-fi and horror inside out. It's my métier. I've been rewritten three times by writers who have one one-hundredth of my knowledge about sci-fi and horror, and in each case, the movie suffered from the changes. That's not me saying it. It's the producers admitting after the fact, albeit drunkenly, that my original takes on the script were much, much better. Ugh. How does this surprise? How is this a surprise to anyone? It should be self-evident. And why does it exist in the first place? Does anyone approve the plans of a building and then hire another less talented architect to redesign the building? I know my stories and characters. They don't and can't. Not like me. It's my vision, not theirs. Unfortunately, being rewritten is a fact of Hollywood life. So you have no choice. You can rail against it, as I'm doing now, but you have to accept it. Once they buy your script, you lose all rights to it, period. They can turn it into a puppet show if they want. Ah, shit, why did I just give them that idea? Oh, and how about the vapor deals where they're drawing up the contracts as we speak, quote unquote, and then crickets. Hello, can you hear me now? Where's the contracts? Things have changed. Okay, I, I get it. The last thing you need to worry about, and it's the toughest part of this profession, is the money. Most scripts are sold on an option, which means they pay you a small percentage until they roll film. It's called principal photography. This can be a problem because even if the option is $10,000, how are you going to live on that for a year, which is the average time of an option? And it may be even longer until principal photography starts. Hopefully, there's other projects coming in because now you're a hotshot writer with the film or series in pre-production, but not always. And most contracts have a rewrite built in, so you're doing work and getting paid little, which means you don't actually take another project just yet. Keep a good stock of ramen and 99-cent frozen burritos on hand. I have to think six months out on every dollar I spend. Today, I'm wondering where the money for February is coming from. And since most production shut down the closer it gets to the holidays and nothing much is bought or sold in November and December, that's becoming a very nervous discussion with myself. I'm not joking when I tell you that I heard Target was hiring for the holidays, and for a few moments, I considered it. Even if I sell something today, it's likely to be at least two months before I actually get my option payment because of contracts, negotiations, and payment schedules. You can't be lackadaisical about financial planning if you're a scriptwriter. Scriptwriting is hard, not quite nightmarish, but it does have those moments of pure horror, usually at 3 a.m. when you wake up in a cold sweat. But as I've always told myself... Looking back in regret, wondering what could have been, or even worse, giving up because I just got tired of swimming laps in an empty pool? Well, that's a million times worse. Be inspired. Do good work. Okay, well, that just about wraps things up for another episode of Plot Points, the podcast. Thanks for joining us. We can take your questions or comments at 919scripts. You can also reach us at plotpoints.com where there's a handy-dandy form for you to submit your questions or comments. We really want to know what you guys are watching and what you guys are thinking about the podcast. And for upcoming shows, we'd like to know what is your favorite sci-fi movie, what is your favorite romantic comedy, and what is your favorite comic book movie. And remember, not every comic book movie has a superhero in it. We're going to discuss those in the future, and when we talk about all that stuff, we hope you'll be here to join us. I'm Toby. Take care.